let us turn for our scripture reading this morning, continuing David's uh, hymn of praise, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and we take up the reading at verse 12, reading through to verse 36. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 12 through verse 36. in encouraging God's people to be glad and to praise the Lord, as we shall see after traumatic experience amongst the people of God as they've taken God for granted. We hear David in the lyrics of this hymn of praise write, Remember the wondrous works that the Lord has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen race. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed as a statute to Jacob as an everlasting covenant to Israel, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number and of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be held in awe above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. The Lord bless this reading of his holy word. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you've given to us. We thank you for this song of praise from David when the Ark was Ark of the Covenant was restored. This is in much contrast to the previous chapters where David was angry with the Lord and when Uzzah was struck down. We ask that you'll be with Dr. Trumper as he explains this portion of Scripture to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, if you've been here the last occasions in which uh, I've preached from uh, the pulpit here, you will know that we've dealt with some uh, sober topics. And so I thought it was fitting this morning to consider the whole notion of joy and how we may come to experience more joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, heavenly joy, or what uh, the Apostle Peter calls glorious joy, or joy filled with glory. And so we come to this book of 1 Chronicles. I don't have a particular text this morning, but we're going to make our way through the book of Chronicles and trace how Ezra the scribe depicts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a path to joy. C.S. Lewis, the uh, apologist of the 20th century, said that joy is the serious business of heaven. And I understand him to mean by that both that heaven is a place of great joy, but also that it is the will of the God of heaven that we should experience as God's people more of that joy. And yet I'm sure that as we come to this subject, two challenges are present to our minds. And the first is that uh, not all are on course for heaven. One of the things that I have learned in Grand Rapids, and I've heard many Grand Rapidians comment upon, is that when you come to the obituaries in the Grand Rapids press or online, everybody is going to heaven. Well, I want to say up front that I am not the judge of anyone. But we know from the testimony of Scripture that not everybody is on course for heaven. And therefore, at this particular moment in time, whether here or elsewhere, not everybody has access to the joy of which the Bible speaks, this heavenly joy, this glorious joy, which belongs to the people of God alone. Reminded of John Newton's hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God. And he has this line which has always struck me, solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. And he's making exactly the point that I've just been making. And it's quite possible, I make no assumption, that there may be some who are in church but not in Christ. So I want to say that we live in a very privileged land where we know many joys, many blessings, but we might not know the joy of heaven. If we're not in Christ, we don't know the joy of heaven. Let me quote again C.S. Lewis in a famous quotation that's found in his book, The Weight of Glory. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so I say to you this morning, 
if you are yet to profess your faith in the Lord Jesus, that you are, according to the Bible, I believe C.S. Lewis is right, playing around with mud pies in a slum, when you could be knowing the infinite joy of heaven, says Paul Washer in our own day. When a person becomes a Christian, the sin that was once a delightful meal tastes like a barrel of rot, and the life of sin that was once a fragrant bed smells and feels like a miry wallow. The Christian is not immune to sin, but can no longer find long-term delight in it. And so I begin this morning by asking, if we come to the challenge of this subject of joy, do we know the earthly joys and the earthly joys alone that God can give us even outside of Christ? Or have we gone beyond them to experience and to taste something of the heavenly, the glorious joy of which the Apostle Peter speaks in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, as a sufferer to those who are suffering, saying that in the midst of of our sufferings, we can know this heavenly, this glorious joy. So we ask ourselves at the outset of this message, which is the joy that we have known this summer? Is it simply the joy of beautiful skies, lovely Michigan scenery, joy within the family perhaps, joy within the gifts that we have been given by nature through God, or is it more than that? Have we entered by the grace and power of God into a joy that we did not know and could not know otherwise? So that's the first challenge. And then the second challenge is this, which pertains to those of us who profess faith in the Lord Jesus, that not all of us on course for heaven are joyful. And I can speak for myself, and I would speak probably for most, if not all of us, who profess faith that when we read off the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, it comes to that word joy, a nagging feeling in the back of our senses that really I could do as someone on course for heaven to exhibit more joy. And so we come to a passage which is both <coughs> convicting, but I trust will also be encouraging. The great <coughs> German reformer Martin Luther said, the Christian, and again living in a day of great suffering with people being put to death for the faith, said this, the Christian ought to be a living doxology. So we come to worship when we sing out the Gloria Patri at the end of the service. But he's saying the Christian is somebody who doesn't just trot out these doxologies, but someone who is actually living them. Yet we confess this cannot always be said of us, says the pioneer missionary doctor to the Solomon Islands, North Coat Deck. A joyless Christian is a libel on his master. And if you are feeling a little bit alone about this, know that you are not alone. Probably the greatest expositor of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, put it like this. When he was diagnosed with cancer, he was making his way through 14 years of expositions on the Epistle of Paul to the Romans. 
And when he came to Romans 14, where Paul says, the kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink, but peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He never got to preach the sermon on joy, because after the sermon on peace, he was struck down with cancer. And he was out of the pulpit, and I'm not sure he ever got back to that series. But when he did get back on his feet, and he came to his ministers for eternal, he said he felt that the Lord had chastened him. In that he never got to preach on the fact that the kingdom of heaven is joy, because he felt that one of the things missing in his ministry depicting the challenges of the church, depicting the wretchedness of man and the need of saving grace in Christ was joy in the Holy Spirit. And so I put it to us then this morning that this passage before us is relevant to us whether we be outside of Christ experiencing nothing today to this heavenly glorious joy or whether we be in Christ needing to grow in the grace of joy, nurturing this joy, cultivating this joy. And as we turn then to 1 Chronicles and we look at individual verses, we find that woven into the fabric of the book are four steps to heavenly joy, glorious joy. Joy filled with glory, says the Apostle Peter. And the first is to know the path. If you go back to the very first verse of 1 Chronicles, we have our first stepping stone. This is how the book begins with the genealogy. Adam, Seth, and then follows a whole array of names. And from this history, we learn two vital lessons. The first lesson is the necessity of the path. And so by mentioning Adam, Ezra the scribe sends our minds back right to the dawn of history, right to the beginning of the Bible, and reminds us that Adam was made for joy. He was uniquely able to know God, to fellowship with God, to enjoy the blessings of God. The animal world, they're all made after their kind. But Adam is made in the image of God, after the likeness of God. Therefore, he can know fellowship, which is so crucial to joy, heavenly joy, fellowship with God. Remember how God came to Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day. And just imagine what that encounter would have been like between Adam and Eve and their God had it not been for the fact that Adam and Eve had already fallen into sin. God says to them, why are you hiding? But if they hadn't sinned, they wouldn't have been hiding. And just imagine for a moment the amount and intensity of fellowship with their maker they would have known had they not sinned. But the milk is spilt. We cannot reverse history. They have sinned. And so what did they do? They ruined their joy. And through disobedience, they became estranged from God and introduced sin to their posterity. And so if you turn back to Genesis 4.25, we read this. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And so what was meant for their joy, namely their creation in the image and likeness of God, to know unbounded fellowship and joy with God is ruined by this act of disobedience. And so when 
1 Chronicles begins, Adam, Seth, already we are told this first lesson that we have the necessity of finding the path to true joy. Isn't this true of us too as the children of Adam? Inheriting Adam's sin and outworking it in our own actual sins, we too are on a path by nature. But it is not a path that leads to God, and it's not a path that leads to the joy that He has for us. And so we need, by nature, to find the path. But the second lesson that Ezra gives us as he opens this book is the gracious way in which God has enabled us to find the path. God, who in His justice cast us off, has graciously shown us in the Scriptures the path back to Him. And man knows of this path. This is one of the benefits of being made in the image and unto the likeness of God, that we know certain things that the animal creation does not know. And we know that the God against whom we have sinned the God against whom we have rebelled is nevertheless a gracious God. And so at the time then of Seth and Enosh, we read in Genesis 4:26, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, they wouldn't have been calling upon God's name had they not hoped, had they not dared to think that this God, who in His justice had punished them for undercutting their own joy, by their disobedience, was also the God who could restore their joy through His gracious plan to send the promise of a Savior. That promise has already been given in Genesis 3.15, what we call the Protevangelium, the first gospel. But when we come into 1 Chronicles, we then understand why Ezra is so keen then to go through all these genealogies. He's not somebody who just likes to pay his annual fee to Ancestry.com to find out who were his ancestors and how Israel had uh, developed and then with the splitting of the kingdom, Judah's developed. Rather, he is communicating that through these genealogies, the promise of a Savior is coming to God's people. And so you find that the genealogies go through the Abrahamic era. And you remember then, bouncing forward for a moment, how Jesus says that wonderful statement in John 8, 56, that Abraham saw my day and was glad. So when we think of Abraham then, we think of all the promises of a coming Savior coming to him and through him to us. And then the genealogies cross over into the Mosaic era, Moses prefiguring Christ's mediation. It was to Moses that the design of the sacrificial system was given. For it is through the shedding of blood that we come back to relationship with God and enter into this heavenly or gracious joy. And it was the fact that Moses was called, as the King James Version puts it, from the backside of the desert to be a prophet. No one knowing God face-to-face -face as Moses knew face-to-face -face, so that he could foretell and foretell the gospel. And then the genealogies go through the Davidic era. 
And there we find the completion of the picture of the Messiah who's going to come. He's not only a prophet, he's not only a priest, he's also a king. So David wants to construct the temple. God says, no. But this is what I'm going to give you, David. I'm going to give you a marvelous consolation prize. That from your line is going to come a king whose kingdom will never end. And so through these genealogies, we are crossing over turf in which we learn that the mediator is going to be the one through whom we can know joy, heavenly joy, glorious joy. And to Abraham is given the promise. And to Moses is given the promise, the prophethood and the priesthood. To David is given the promise, the kingship. And so what we are taught is this, through this myriad of names in the opening chapters of 1 Chronicles, is that God's path to joy runs via Christ's cross back to himself. So let me say to you this morning, if you're outside of Christ, that you cannot know this heavenly joy, you cannot know this glorious joy without coming to the cross. If you are intent and so fixated upon joy, you have your bookshelves full of self-help books that don't major upon the cross of Christ. You can come to some measure of increased earthly joy, but you cannot know this heavenly joy. You cannot know this glorious joy. If you try and circumnavigate the cross, it will not happen. That's what 1 Chronicles is about. Listen to the 19th century hymn of William Williams. There is a path of pardon in his blood. There is a sure salvation in his blood. So let me say to you this morning, if you say, well, I hear about this heavenly joy, I hear about this glorious joy, I want it. Well, you need to get to the cross. There is a path of pardon. It's in his blood. And that path goes via the cross back to God. And in relationship, fellowship with God, that's where you get to know the heavenly the glorious joy. Step number one. Step number two, clear the path. And now we're moving on to 1 Chronicles 10 and 13. Somebody here this morning is going to be asking, okay, if heavenly glorious joy belongs to the people of God, then why is it that Christians can know joylessness? Why is it that those of us who claim to be on the path and not always exhibiting true joy, and we must confess that that is the case. Well, certainly, you want to say that there are physical, emotional, temperamental, cultural, circumstantial reasons for that. But that is no excuse for us to say, well, I cannot be joyful. And I think one of the props that is taken away from us with regard to this issue is that it is Peter as a sufferer who writes to suffering people who says, having not seen him, we love him and rejoice with a joy that is irresistible and filled with glory. And so we have to ask ourselves, and how come these Christians in the first century facing the might of the Roman Empire can rejoice with a joy filled with glory when we live in the richest country on the earth with blessing upon blessing upon blessing, filling up counseling centers because we do not know joy, not knocking counseling. Listen to the Puritan Thomas uh, Stephen Charnock. 
there may be joy in God when there is little joy from God. And it is by the power and the grace of God that we are enabled to know this heavenly joy, this glorious joy, irrespective of our circumstances. Some of us here have known people of diverse trials and afflictions. What has been remarkable to us is that not having anything to rejoice necessarily in life, they find their joy in God. Come away from a continent like Africa. Why is African singing so joyful? When you look at what they have, you go to have a shower and a trickle of water. You try and stretch it all over yourself. They don't have the bank accounts we have. They don't have the social services we have. And yet, when you see them sing out in praise to God, how joyful they are. And it's not to do with the fact that they live on a sunny continent. And so, John Blanchard, the British evangelist, says, true joy glows in the dark. It's not attached to circumstances. And so, in zooming in from the broad scope of the human race to the particular history of Judah, Ezra tells us that God's people undercut their joy. And this is the point I'm getting at, that we are capable of doing the same. And the first reason they undercut their joy was by breaching faith with God. God had brought them into a relationship with Him, but they broke the covenant with God. Now, you can go back to 1 Samuel 8, 5 to 9 to figure out that this had happened a long time before. Remember that Samuel is old and he's at Ramah. And the people come to him and say, we don't want a king like the other nations. Give us a king. Give us a king. And God speaks to Samuel, who's evidently distressed by this desire. And he says, give them a king. They're always breaking covenant with them. Give them a king. And sometimes it's true for us too that we nag God, nag God, nag God for this, 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 this. And God says in the end, okay, give it to them. And then they will learn that their joy is not found in what I give them. And so we come to the end of Saul's reign in uh, 1 Chronicles 10, verses 13 to 14. Notice how the breach of covenant continues. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So how often do we break covenant with God? And we wonder then why our joy is not this glory-filled joy. And what Chronicles is teaching us, what the Bible at large teaches us, is that we cannot claim to love God and disobey Him at the same time. We cannot treat friendship with God like we treat our Facebook friends. You know, I love that Instagram picture of a body laid out. And there's two people in the funeral parlor. And one turns to the other and says, uh, but I thought he had 2,000 Facebook friends. And sometimes we treat our relationship to God like that. Oh, it's just a, a vague acquaintance that I have with God. And God is coming and says, no, when I enter into a relationship with you and you enter into a relationship with me through faith in the Lord Jesus, it's a covenant. 
I have unilaterally made the covenant, but as the covenant opens, there are bilateral, two-way responsibilities. And your responsibility, coordinate with the privilege you have of being in relationship with me, is actually to heed what I'm saying to you so as to minister to your joy, to fulfill your joy. And so the first reason they undercut their joy was by breaching the covenant. And then the second reason, they became presumptuous, and we can be so too. The promise of David's enthronement is realized on Saul's demise, and Israel's humiliation now gives way to a golden age under David and later Solomon. And so there is a new intent then to seek the Lord. David wants to put the people back on the right track, and so we read chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have passed your lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. Well, you see, they meant well, but they had yet to return to God's word. And you may be saying this morning, well, I want to get back to God. I want to know afresh that heavenly, that glory-filled joy. And you may be very sincere this morning, but there may be a whole load of obstacles on your path to getting back to God and to get him back to joy. It may be that you've breached the covenant and you don't realize the seriousness of it. You don't realize that before you can enter into this joy, you need to confess where you've been. But more than that, God isn't simply looking at your heart. He's looking at your actions. Are you now going to pick up the Bible and say, and am I going to pick up the Bible and say, okay, I breached faith with God. There's a whole load of obstacles in my way to God and to the joy that he has promised. What do I need to do according to the word of God as a fruit of my faith and repentance to clear the path so that I can come into the joy of my Lord? They had sincerity, but you notice what happened. The ark has been in the house of Abinadab, 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 4. And so they begin to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. It's a, a mighty significance because God has promised to meet with his people at the ark. And Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, is driving the cart, the cart rocks, puts his hand out and is struck dead. It's tremendously overwhelming to the people of God. What is happening here? What is happening? Well, Uzzah put his trust in his own strength. He shouldn't have been driving a cart with the Ark of the Covenant upon it. According to Numbers 4.15, it was the Levites who were to carry the Ark. And no one, even amongst the sons of Levi, were to touch the Ark. But he touched the Ark and he died. So clearing the path means then not only repenting for sins of the past, but it means reforming our lives according to the Word of God. It means getting hold of the Bible, 
and making those concrete decisions to honor God in the very practical details of life. Have I been stealing from God by not giving my tithe? Have I said as a young person, oh, it doesn't matter if this guy or this girl that I like, Christian or not, so I'll win them over to the Lord. And you enter into a relationship and you wonder why your joy is sucked up. It may mean no longer cutting corners in work. You know your own life, I know my own life, the obstacles that we put along the path. And so we need not only a God-honoring intent, but we need a practical use of the Scriptures to say, what are the areas of my life where I need to concretely reform my life according to the Word of God? It's a taking off of the path, the rubble that hinders us from the joy that God has for us. And so the third step then is observing the path, and we come into 1 Chronicles 13. God's people perceived a, a huge wake-up call to reform their ways when Uzzah died. They needed not only revival, they needed reformation. Does Israel take a more serious approach now to seeking God? And it begins with what we call in Michigan a Michigan U-turn. They've got to go back in order to go forward. And that's what repentance does, going back to God in order to go forward. But note three main markers that the Lord gives them to encourage them in their pursuit of God. The first marker is the fear of God, chapter 13, verses 12 to 13. Uzzah has just died. We read, and David was afraid of God that day, and he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the host house of Obed-Edom. He's afraid of God. He now has a reverential awe of God. You see, they didn't have that before. They thought, all that matters is I turn up to church. All that matters is that I look like a Christian. And God says to them, no, no, no. Yes, it's important to seek God, but you seek Him according to my will. And so the ark then goes to the house of Obed-Edom, and surprisingly, what happens? Well, the second marker, the blessing of God happens. Surprisingly, although Uzzah has been struck dead, Obed-Edom is blessed even though he lives with the ark of the covenant, evidently not touching it. And so as Obed-Edom receives this blessing with all of Israel probably looking on and saying, oh boy, what's going to happen to Obed-Edom? They are surprised to find out that Obed-Edom is blessed. And not only is Obed-Edom blessed, but David is blessed, chapter 14 and verse 1. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also masons and carpenters to build a house for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. That his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more wives in Jerusalem. I'm not going to get into the issue of polygamy. But what I'm saying is this. As we honor God and clear the path of decisions that we have made in disobedience of the covenant and undercut our joy, as we clear the path, we find rising up within us this fresh sense of joy, this fresh sense of shalom, that we are in the center of God's will, 
doing exactly what God wants us to do. And as that happens, so we find the joy rises. So we find that we are entering into a deeper relationship and fellowship with God. Ah, this is the joy of which the Bible speaks. Not only is Obed-Edom blessed, David blessed, but also the children of Israel blessed. Just as they were defeated by the Philistines on the occasion of Saul's death, now they are victorious against the Philistines. And so the third marker on the path to joy, the fear of God, the blessing of God, the prioritization of God. And we come in to chapter 15 and 16. Notice the first two verses. And David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. You see the point? Ah, we get it. Okay. It's not simply enough for us to seek God for revival. God is calling us to reform our ways in concrete ways according to his word. Okay, so let's take a second take on bringing the Ark of the Covenant back from the house of Abinadab and the house of Obed-Edom into Jerusalem. But this time we're going to do it according to God's way. Let's get out the book of the law. Okay, the book of the law says the Levites are to carry the ark and no one is to touch it. Okay, we're going to do what God has commanded. Notice then not only their prioritization of the will of God, but their prioritization of the worship of God. So David says to the people, verse 12 of chapter 15, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate you, yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the message for us this morning is this. If we would know a return to the joy that once we'd known faith in Christ. Revival. Seek the Lord, but seek him according to the word. So as they do that, what happens? They hold this parade. It's a great parade. You can read it through the rest of chapter 15. And the opening seven verses of chapter 16. The parade is followed by a service of thanksgiving. And so what are we taught? We are taught that by putting God first, we feed our joy. And so the point that Ezra would have us understand is this. If we are to know this heavenly, this glorious joy, we don't fixate upon the joy. That's what the world does. Oh, the world goes and gets all its self-help books, and there's a place for some of those. But God is so countercultural, And he says, you want to know this heavenly joy? You want to know this glorious joy? And then fixate on me, and the joy will come. Fixate upon the joy and you'll be frustrated. Fixate on me and the joy will come. So what do we do then? You want more of this heavenly joy this morning? Don't be like the world. Maybe it's here. Maybe it's here. Maybe it's here. God is saying to us this morning, fixate on the God you have and the joy for which you yearn will come. Fixate upon the joy for which you yearn and miss out upon God. In other words, making an idol of the joy and you'll be frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. 
brings us on then fourthly. Step four, complete the path. 1 Chronicles 16 and this marvelous hymn of praise. We come to David's hymn. There's much in it, but most relevant is its three references to joy. Each occurs in phases of the hymn wherein we are called to praise God. And they depict three scenarios, and with these, we'll come to a close. The first scenario, our encountering of God. Verses 8 to 10, we read them for our call to worship. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. This is the first scenario in which we come to this joy that is found in God. When God breaks through, when we seek Him earnestly with integrity, not only for personal revival, but reformation according to the Word of God, God comes and He honors the prayers of God's people to seek Him continually, to seek Him earnestly. All those who seek the Lord rejoice. You want to rejoice in this day when we don't know what's going to happen to the nation? This is it. Seeking the Lord. And maybe part of our problem with joy as the people of God is that we were happy enough, happy enough, when we kept trotting out, God bless America. Without earnestness to seek the God who gives the blessing. So long as I have my blessings, I don't necessarily need God. And God is saying, you need me for all the joy in the world for these blessings. What does Nehemiah later say? The joy of the Lord is our strength. What did the first century Christians understand? If I seek God and I'm filled with God, then the joy comes irrespective of my circumstances. So seek joy and frustration may result. Seek God's glory and the joy comes. The second scenario, the joy that comes on our entrance into heaven. Go down the hymn to verses 23 through 27. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be held in awe above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy is in his place. You see what happens? Those who are filled with joy become the best evangelists. Tell out his salvation from day to day. His marvelous works among all the people. Why? Because strength and joy, I love this phrase, are in his place. See what C.S. Lewis is saying? Joy is the great business of heaven. It's his place. And so we declare the Lord's salvation because heaven's joy has broken out in my life. Since we are en route to the joy of heaven, we yearn for others to experience it. And that's why I'm keen to say to this man in Monrovia, Liberia, don't just tell me that you want to leave some social cultural group called Islam to enter another social cultural group called Christianity. I want to know not simply that you want to hook yourself onto some Christian church. I want to know if you're in Christ. I want to know if come the end of your age, you're going to enter into the joy of his place. 
Imagine. Can but imagine. We love that contemporary song, don't you? Imagine. Imagine what it's like for somebody to die and to enter into his place of joy. Joy is not an end in itself. This is where we disagree with Mitch Albin, the five people you meet in heaven. Oh, you meet the five people, but God is nowhere to be found. And the Christian says, by contrast, no, God is the joy of heaven. Listen to hymn 471, hymn of Anne Cousins, the sands of time are sinking. Verse 4, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but only on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but on the pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Second scenario, our entering heaven. Third scenario, which is often what is cut off from the gospel. Our experiencing of our inheritance here upon a new earth to come. Notice verse 18, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Well, what's the fulfillment of the inheritance? It is not when we go to his place. It is when God comes to our place, when he renews this earth, when our bodies are raised from death to life, reunited with our souls, psychosomatically whole, on a renewed earth, when his place becomes this place, when all the promises of the inheritance for God's people come to fulfillment in a renewed earth upon which there is no crying, no more pain, no more tears, for the former things are passed away when there is no death, when there are no funeral directors, when there are no hospitals, when there are no counseling centers. Isn't this what Paul is talking about in Romans 8? The creation yearning for the new earth, the inheritance. God's people yearning for the glorious revealing of the sons of God. Listen to verse 31 through 33. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Friends, brothers and sisters, how ought we to respond? Well, that depends on where we're at. Are you needing to find the path to God and to joy this morning? You're on a path, but it's heading away from God. Well, God has shown you the path in his word. So personalize this prayer in verse 35, 36. Get alone with God today. This is one of the beauties of the Lord's day, to get alone with God. Save us, O God, of my salvation. Gather and deliver me from among the nations, that I may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And then, for those of us who are in Christ, needing to progress down the path, clear the path, 
observe the path, how your sense of blessing rises with obedience and complete the path. God will come to you in life. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. He will come to you in death. Isn't this the marvelous statement of John 14? I go to prepare a place for you. And what we often forget about those verses, and if I go and prepare a place for you, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, I will come again to receive you to myself in some mysterious way. It is the Lord Jesus who by his spirit comes to receive his people so that they may enter into the joy of God's place. And then also at the end of the age, when God comes down and makes this earth the epicenter of the fulfillment of the promise of the inheritance, heaven in its final, completed, consummated state, a place of unending joy. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame, bore the cross. It's the same for us, brother and sister. Yes, we're not always going to be walking around with smiles like neon lighting, flashing, flashing, flashing. But we do have this joy that there's coming a day when we shall know unending joy. And how does the chapter end? Then all the people said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And all the people said, Amen. And praise